Welcome, everybody, to The Lancet's podcast. My name is Richard Horton. I'm delighted to be here today with Professor Anthony Costello from the Institute for Global Health at University College London. We are here to introduce the publication of the first of a series of Lancet commissions. And this is the UCL Institute for Global Health and Lancet Commission on Managing the Health Effects of Climate Change. Listeners may wonder why the Lancet's publishing commissions. And before we discuss the particular specifics of this report, it's probably worth just explaining that for a moment. At a journal like the Lancet, we see the world confronting some pretty big challenges. We're going through an epidemic at the moment of swine flu, but that's on a background of poverty, conflict, and economic crisis. And when we're trying to think about, well, what are the solutions to these predicaments? There's no question that science has a, an enormous contribution to make to those solutions. But the question really is, how can science make that contribution? At a journal like The Lancet, we're dealing with individuals, we're dealing with groups of scientists, we're publishing individual papers. And we've thought, is that enough? And the answer is, no, it's not really enough, because it's too random and it's too narrow. And if we look around society and say which institutions are best placed to manage, think about complex problems facing people, I don't think you'd find a better institution than a university. So we looked for a partner, a university that had a global ambition, had a global reach that we could work with to identify a neglected problem and think about how to work across faculties, across departments, in a truly interdisciplinary way to come up with a set of solutions. And University College London was our first partner, and the first challenge is climate change. Anthony Costello is the chair of this commission. He's a longtime friend of The Lancet. We've published much of his work. And he's been a fantastic inspiration for this piece of work now. Anthony, welcome today. Tell us a little bit about the messages of this commission and how you did what you did at University College. Thanks, Richard. Well, the, the big message is that climate change is a health issue. It's not just an environment issue about polar bears and deforestation. And we think it's quite probably the most important global health issue of the 21st century. We've come to that conclusion after a process that pretty difficult because, you know, as you know, a year ago, I didn't know much more about climate change than, than most people in the street. In rising to your challenge, we've had to grapple with the challenge that face all universities, which is to try and break down the silos that we all sit in. We sit in different boxes. And we've brought together anthropologists, economists, environmentalists, um, urban development specialists, mathematicians, philosophers, into our commission, and students who, interestingly, were extremely knowledgeable about these issues. And so the first thing we wanted to do was to try and get updated, all of us, those of us who were not particularly abreast of climate science, as to what the messages were. And in summarising that, I would say, as you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports every few years has come up with some computerised predictions and models forecasting what will happen to the climate, which range from not too bad, keeping global warming to less than two degrees, up to really catastrophic, 
over the next century, of you know, six degrees and beyond. The really worrying thing to me is that all the science that's come out in the last two years about global temperature, about ice sheet dynamics, sea level rise, acidification of the oceans, is all at the really bad end of the forecasts. The second thing I've learned is that if you have global warming of two to three degrees overall, there will be parts of the world, northern latitudes, inland areas, which will be much warmer. I mean, in the polar regions, in the Himalayas, we're already at two degrees, which the UK government says is the safe limit. And so if you get this regional variation, you come on to the third problem with climate science, which I didn't realise, which is reaching tipping points, whereby changes happen, which then begin to accelerate. If ice disappears from the Arctic, um, you absorb more heat because there's less ice, white ice surface area to reflect the heat. If the tundra starts to melt, you release all of the methane that's underneath it, which uh, is 23 times as powerful as greenhouse gas as CO2. Mm. So we're setting in train a process that may have serious implications in my lifetime, but in the lifetime of my children and perhaps our grandchildren, potentially will be catastrophic. We think about climate change pretty much as you've characterised it. We don't think of it in the way that you've conceived it in this report. I mean, your opening statement in this report is that climate change could be the biggest global health threat Mm. of the 21st century. We're at the moment facing swine flu. We've got this background of epidemic disease, chronic diseases. Why should we think about climate change as a health threat? Health threats are diseases. What is climate change going to do to shape diseases in the future? We've considered a whole number of pathways through which climate change is going to exert its effects, some of which will happen earlier than others. The first is changing patterns of disease and mortality, partly through changing epidemics with greater transmission and greater geographic spread of a whole range of infections that we know about, like malaria, like dengue fever, like new virus infections, which have started to move as a result of climate change. Secondly, heat. Heat is a silent killer. There was a relatively minor heat wave in Europe in 2003, And when the epidemiologists looked at it subsequently, they calculated about 70,000 excess deaths in Europe from that heat wave. We know that as average temperature increases, the frequency and severity of heat waves will go up a lot. We simply don't know the effects of heat on elderly populations in India and Africa at the moment. People say they're well adapted. We don't know if that's true. And we need to look at that much more. The second and third pathways we looked at were food security and water security. And I think these are the two areas which are going to have potentially the biggest health effects. The crop scientists are telling us that actually crop yields are much more sensitive to growing temperature than I had realised. That even a one degree increase in growing temperature can reduce crop yields by as much as 17%. That's from work done in America. So if we're going to get early changes in the next 20 or 30 years, changing crop yields may well then trigger more of an effect through food prices. We saw what happened to food prices last year. As the Lancet has been worrying about, we know that at the moment about a billion people, nearly a billion people, have calorie deficient diets. Mm. And there are various estimates of the amount of hunger that's increased over the past year through food prices. And the projections from a whole number of think tanks, including the crop scientist, is that this situation will get worse. 
as demand increases from India, from China, and from other parts of the world where population is increasing. Just to move on, shelter and settlements, there's rapid urbanization. Urban areas are heat islands, they attract heat. And we still don't know what's going to happen to the many slum populations. Uh, and that links into the next effect, which is extreme events. We know that the number of hurricanes, cyclones, uh, storm surges, climate-related extreme events has doubled over the past 20 years, according to the insurance companies, actually, who have to cover this. And that's going to get progressively worse as temperature rises. And populations, the poorest populations, are, are most vulnerable to this. A cyclone in, in America may only kill a few tens of people. The same one in Myanmar last year probably caused 150,000 deaths. Finally, and perhaps most important, is the effects of all of these things on population migration. If you get drought, if you get desertification, if you get food insecurity, you're going to get populations on the move. And in the medium term, what's going to happen to sea level? 13 of the 20 largest cities in the world sit on a coast. And yes, the IPCC projection was just half a metre sea level rise by the end of the century. Now the latest Copenhagen findings are 1.2 metre sea level rise. The climate scientists say that's fine, but that's assuming a steady linear projection. But what they're worried about is that suddenly things are going to get a whole heap worse, a little bit like the economic crisis. The economists, only about three or four of them were saying, we're going over a cliff. Everyone else said, no, 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 don't worry about it. It's, the projections are fine. And then suddenly, uh, you know, we, we saw what happened. And I think there is that fear. And a lot of the climate scientists I talk to are saying five plus metres sea level rise is certainly on the cards. And that will have devastating effects population-wise. You've laid these pathways out, and I can see how taking a very broad definition of the determinants of health, how climate is going to affect um, our future prosperity, so to speak, from a health perspective. But now what happens next? This report comes out. It's a long report. I think it's about the biggest thing we've ever published in the mm. journal at any one time. Is it going to sit on a shelf or are we going to do anything? What can we as an academic community do together to make a sustained contribution to this issue. Not just publishing mm. research papers, not just publishing even commissions, as, as good as we, we hope this is. What can we do that has some sustainable impact? I think we might be reaching a tipping point in public opinion. I think the health lobby has come late to this debate and should have been saying more. There's, as you know, there have been a small group of people who've been talking about this for 20 years and doing great studies on it. But, you know, I, I was relatively unaware of a lot of the implications of climate change until a year ago. I think there is a growing recognition now, particularly from younger people, that this is the great issue of our age, allied to the sort of threat to the ecosystem generally, and that we have to take more action about it. I think there are three things. First, we have to add the health lobby to the mitigation debate. I think if we're saying, look, this is a very serious threat to the health of our children who are born mm. and to our grandchildren, it's going to focus minds a bit more about the importance 
of getting greenhouse gas emissions down and doing more about what they call bio-sequestration, which is reforestation and changing agricultural practices. So we have to add our voice to that debate, and I think that can push it up the political agenda. Secondly, all the things I've talked about, all of those very complex pathways, which will require political intervention, technological intervention, intervention from all academic disciplines, civil society groups, communities, we need to do something about that. And we've called for a collation of information about this leading up to a major international conference in the next two years, because I think that would enable all the stakeholders and especially representation from the poorest countries in the world who've been left out of this debate, I think, would be very helpful so that we could come up with some targets, some indicators, some accountability mechanisms, which enable us to monitor how we're doing. Thirdly, we've got to do, this is integrally related with development, with the development of good public health and health systems. And there is a huge equity issue here. People in Africa and South Asia are going to suffer, it is estimated, 500 times as much as the wealthy part of the world. They're 500 times more vulnerable, yet they have contributed least to this problem. It is the wealthy, industrialised part of the world who have been responsible for the emissions. So there is a real equity and justice issue here, and there is what people are calling an intergenerational justice issue. We have got to do something now to protect the lives of our children and grandchildren. And if we fail to do that, I think our generation will be lambasted in the way that we look back and criticise the people that introduced slavery or the people that introduced colonialisation. I think this is a major issue for us. And time is limited because what decisions we take in the next 10, 20 years are going to have a century-long impact. This idea for creating a sustainable monitoring and evaluation mechanism based on this commission over the next couple of years is something that we want to continue as a Lancet UCL, UCL Lancet Commission. Mm. Um, It's a partnership that I think needs to be sustained if we're going to do exactly what you say, which is make the health dimension of the global debate about climate change really serious and, and really um, contributory. Just, I want to get a bit of a flavour, though, about how you did this. I, I can remember sitting in a few early meetings of the Commission, and you, know, you had philosophers eyeing up biomedical scientists rather suspiciously across the room, lawyers looking at political scientists also rather... It it was a very unusual process to get people round a table from different parts of a university. Often they'd never met before. They Mm. didn't know each other's backgrounds, didn't know their methods of working. They had different standards of what was good evidence Mm. and what wasn't good evidence. Just give me a little bit of a flavour of what it was like to actually do this commission. I think it was huge fun. One of the lawyers said to me, it's so great to be talking not just to lawyers all the time. <laughs> and, and you know, you, you and I, you know, we're always in the biomedical arena. It was fantastic to talk to philosophers discussing issues around justice or the lawyers saying, look, there are major legal issues here around technological debates. If we're going to improve 
crop yields or water conservation or better buildings and stuff. There are massive issues around patent law, you know, the sort of stuff the Lancet's done on pharmaceutical regulation and the like. It's fascinating getting the different perspectives of engineers, economists, anthropologists, and actually everybody had great fun. I mean, that's what you should be in a university for. I think you only break down those barriers where you come around a common task. And I think one of the challenges will be to sustain that into the future and I do hope that when we move forward on this and interact with the World Health Organization, other universities, civil society organizations, that we can preserve that multidisciplinary bit. I mean one of the best things we did was we had a two-day workshop where we all got together and we had a lot of interactive software so everybody who had ideas could just type them into a keyboard and they'd appear there. And that was extremely creative because people were coming at all kinds of different angles. And I think the policy framework that we came up with was different than the one that if the medics or the epidemiologists had just sat there. So we've said that there is an informational challenge. There is a poverty and equity challenge. There are technological challenges around all of these different pathways. There are huge social and political challenges because issues around food security and water security will touch upon mm. power relations. Mm. And finally, there's a huge institutional challenge. How do we get WHO to talk to the World Trade Organization? Mm. How do we get the global governance systems to talk to one another? Mm. Have we seen the end of G8? Is it now all about G20 or yeah. G80? And I think climate change is going to do for the world community what it's done for UCL, which is to try and break down these barriers. And if we don't do that, to quote Ian McEwan, the novelist, he said this is going to challenge us uh, in terms of rationality and coordination in ways that maybe we can't rise to the challenge. But I think we need to send positive messages out because there's a huge amount of things we can do. And another positive message for health is that if we move to low-carbon living, you solve a lot of the health problems that the Lancet's tackling yeah. every week. I think the way you summarise that is fantastic. I know it's been a really trying exercise. When you started out, you had long, curly black hair, and now you've got short, white <laughs> right. hair. Yeah, exactly. um, and I know it was stressful to pull all this together, but I think it's a fantastic piece of work. I'd like to pay a big credit and tribute to all of your colleagues at University College London for their work on this project. And now the work really begins in getting this message across and sustaining this collaboration. So a big thank you to you, Anthony, to your colleagues, and thanks everybody for listening today.